This passage we're pushing on, Romans 6, 1 through 14. Let's read it and we'll pray. Paul says, Where sin increases, grace tops it. So if sin is this tall, grace is this tall. So he's thinking, maybe people are wondering, then should I just keep sinning? So Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase even more? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with Jesus in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, you count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves up to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but you are under grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you for what Jasmine read earlier. Uh, Long ago, the prophets said that when the Messiah comes, when the King comes, he will set free his people, captives. He will bring peace to the afflicted. He will heal the brokenhearted. He will comfort those who mourn. He will set free people familiar with misery and death. Uh, Jesus, this has always been your plan with this broken world. Not just to restore it, but to renew everything. And we of all people are people who need renewal. Some of us know you. We are in you. Um, We are alive in you. Uh, And yet, Lord, we desperately need your grace again tonight. We need ears to hear and eyes to see. And some of us perhaps don't know you or don't know if we know you. And we pray uh, we need the same thing desperately needing grace and eyes and ears. And because you've been at this since day one, would you do it again tonight? Would you redeem? Would you release? Would you free? Would you comfort? Uh, We need this, and we ask it in your name. Amen. All right, thanks. Take a seat. A guy named Brooks Hatlin had been in Shawshank Penitentiary his entire life almost his entire life, since he was a young teenager. 
If you've seen the movie Shawshank Redemption, you know that by the time Brooks Hatland is released from Shawshank Penitentiary, he's probably in his 80s, maybe his 90s. He's served his sentence. The law is satisfied uh, for the crimes that he committed. And he's this wrinkly old man, and he's limping out of this gigantic Gothic penitentiary. And these big, rusty, squeaky gates open, and the warden says to uh, Brooks Hatland, Brooks, you're a free man now. And the, the, the movie follows Brooks Hatland for the next, looks like, few weeks or months. The next ten minutes of the movie after he's released out of those gates, the movie follows him. And the story doesn't unfold the way you think it would unfold. For a guy who has just been released from a lifetime in captivity, he's just been given a new life, a fresh start. He's just been given his freedom. But uh, Brooks Hatlin is having trouble cutting it on outside the walls uh, because he's been in prison for so long that that's the world and the life that he knows. Captivity and slavery is very familiar to him, but freedom and liberty... He has no clue what to do with. Uh, And he's wrestling with, as he kind of goes to the grocery store, he's walking down the street. He's doing all these normal, everyday, outside-the-wall kind of things. But he, he seems very clear of what he's been delivered from, what he's been released from, prison. But he seems to have no idea what he was released for or what he's been delivered into. Freedom. Life. He doesn't know how to live life. Uh, and so, sadly, Brooks, uh, Brooks says, I can't stay in a place like this, a place like freedom. Uh, and he carves his name in a beam in his halfway house, and he takes his life because he didn't know how to live. Now, the reason I think about this as I was reading this passage is because, uh, and we've touched on this before this semester, but I think for a lot of Christians, perhaps you're very clear on what Jesus has saved you from, You're very clear about what the cross of Jesus has delivered you out of, sin, death, misery, darkness, isolation, captivity. But when it comes to what has, how, not just what has grace delivered you from, but what what has grace delivered you into, or what has Jesus saved you for, or where are you now in this new place of freedom, you seem a lot more clumsy in understanding what that life looks like, and I do too. You think a lot of Christians struggle with this, right? We, we have a clear sense the gospel gets kind of cut in half. The gospel is the good news of Jesus rescuing the world. We kind of cut it in half and it becomes a story of what God has delivered us and released us out of. But it's like all of us, if you're a Christian, are now outside of the walls of captivity and we're like Brooks Hatlin. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know why we're there. We've, it seems that we've not been equipped to live a life of freedom. And we slide back to wanting to be back inside the walls of captivity, kind of that life of darkness, that life of sin, because that's the life we know. It's, it's what feels familiar to us. Okay, so here's a way to think about the book of Romans. It's a long book, and it's pretty dense. The uh, first two and a half, three chapters of Romans is, is God kind of wrestling with you and persuading you of your need of mercy. So he talks a lot about uncomfortable stuff like sin and death and how we're not good people. We don't measure up. We fall short. Uh, the next two or three chapters, chapters three and chapters four and five in particular, the past month or so, what we've been talking about is, is God answering your need. 
He says, you need my mercy. And then he talks about how he has provided grace for you in your death, in your sin, in your captivity. He has justified you. Okay? He has said the only way that you can ever measure up to me is in Jesus. So he says, if you have looked to Jesus by faith, you measure up. Period. End of story. You measure up in the eyes of God if you are in Jesus. Because Jesus measures up. And he shares that with you. Okay? He takes your falling short upon himself and bears the consequences. And he gives you his measuring up. And forever, in the eyes of God, now you measure up. Now, Paul is pivoting uh, after those, the last few chapters where he's talking about God dealing with the penalty or the punishment of your sin. And now he's going to talk about how the gospel or how Jesus deals with not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. That, you know, have you ever heard the expression, you can, you, can, you can take a slave out of slavery in a day, but to take the slavery out of a slave takes a lifetime. Because there's that mentality, that identity of being a captive, of being a slave, and that's what takes a lifetime to wean out of a person, to free out of a person. And Paul's now kind of turning his attention to the power of sin in our lives and what Jesus does about it, what, how grace not only leaves you with a narrow little gospel of what God's done with your past and your mistakes, but what God does today, tomorrow, the next day to change you, to change you forever. And so there's three, three things we'll look at in the next 20 minutes uh, in this passage These are kind of the three things we're going to focus on, or three points. The first is this. A new relationship with Jesus brings a new relationship with sin. Very different relationship with sin. Okay? A new relationship with Jesus brings, always, necessarily brings a new relationship with sin. The second is, a new relationship with Jesus brings a new fight, a new battle. And the third thing we'll see in the passage is a new relationship with Jesus brings a new motive in that fight, in that struggle. Okay? So a new relationship with sin, a new fight, and a new motive. And the first point is this. We've kind of touched on it a second ago. But God's grace doesn't just forgive your sin, but it radically changes your relationship uh, with sin. What Paul is starting to say here, you've got to remember where we've been the past few weeks is he was saying... We are born, and before Jesus makes a person come alive, we're slaves to sin. We're captives to it. We're obedient little servants. We do all of its bidding, and we're at its beck and call. It's our master. It dominates us. It orders us around. It's the tyrant that we follow. Okay? And he's saying, if if you want your relationship to change with sin, your relationship must change with its master. Think of sex trafficking. A lot of y'all have been to seminars and other stuff on campus. It's, a, it's something that's coming to the forefront of, especially on college campuses right now, of drawing awareness to the sex trade. But you think about a lot of these mostly women or children who are kidnapped and they're drugged up every day. Uh, and they are basically, um, they have a pimp or they have a, a, a slave master in a sense. Uh, And because they're drugged up, and this is the only life they know now, they're at his beck and call. They can't escape. And something must happen between their relationship with that slave master. It must be severed. It must be broken if they're ever going to go free and taste a new life, a fresh start. 
that relationship with the master has to be cut at the root in order for them to walk free. They can't try to change themselves. They can't try to grow out of it. But the only way they walk free is if they die, in a sense, to that slave master. And Paul says, likewise, the only way that you can walk away from sin as your master, your king, that orders you around, that you have to obey, is if you die to that master. Okay? If that's the only way that we are released to it. And Paul says, so he says, well, how does this happen? How can you die to sin being kind of your king, your master, uh, your, your pimp in a sense? You may hate it, you may want to get out of it, but you can't. Because it owns you and reigns over you. How do you ever escape that? Paul says the only way you ever escape that kind of slavery and captivity is if you are united to the one who has killed that master. Okay, now for some of you, we've been talking with this language of being united to Jesus, one with him for a while now, but if you're new, that probably sounds really abstract. Hopefully it'll become clear in a few minutes. But stick with me here. Paul is saying the only way you will be released from that is if you are drawn into, you become one with, like a Siamese twin, one with the sin crusher, the sin conqueror, Jesus himself. That's the only way. And that's why if you look at your passage on the bulletin, all of these places pop up. Paul is saying, with, 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 with Jesus. He's saying, you, Christian. And he's relating your story and your life back to Jesus' story and his life. Jesus is central to everything. You cannot be free apart from him. You cannot stop sinning apart from him. You can't change your behavior apart from him in any real way. You think about it like a bike tire. A bike tire only turns if it's circular, right? Uh, and the way a bike tire stays circular is it has all these metal spokes. They kind of they keep the structure of that tire together. But those spokes aren't strong enough on their own unless there is a strong piece of metal or a hub in the middle that they all come into. And Jesus is the hub of your life. And every good thing, Every grace, every benefit of being a Christian comes out of him. So you take Jesus out of the equation and you have nothing. The, the wheel implodes, it collapses in on itself and it doesn't turn anymore and it doesn't go. And you don't go anywhere. But Jesus is the hub. He is the source. He is the life giver. He is the sin crusher. So if you are one with him then your life changes. If your relationship with Jesus, if you have a relationship with Jesus, then your relationship with sin changes. Here's how. Follow with me. It jumps off the page. Paul says, we died to sin because Jesus died to sin. We were baptized into his death. He says, Jesus was buried, and so we were buried. Burial, the reason why he talks about burial is only dead people get buried. So he's saying, do you want to know that you really did die to sin as your master? Well, you have to look outside of yourself to Jesus and see his burial, putting him in the tomb, and seeing that that is, that is you, that is the captive you, the slave you, also being buried. Proof that you died to the tyrant. Proof that you're, you're being made free. He goes on, he says, you were raised up from death into newness of life. So he says, so we also are raised up into newness of life. He says, death no longer has dominion over Jesus. And so death no longer has dominion over who? You. 
And he says Jesus is perfectly free to live a life to God. And so that's the only way you will ever be free to live a life to God. Do you get this? There's a parallel. You get all of the benefits in the Christian life. Death to sin is your master, alive to God, able to change, able to choose, free again, alive again, joyful again. Only if you're connected to Jesus. If you take him out of the equation, you have nothing. See how he's central? See how he's the hub? That's, uh, we can't, this is not a sermon about how to stop sinning as much. Paul doesn't talk about that. Paul doesn't have a, have, a, have a message to his people about how to improve your life and become a better person. He talks about Jesus, 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 and you, 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 you. He is pulling two lives and two stories together and joining them at the hip. That's the only way your story changes is if it gets connected to his story. That's it. No other way. No other way to change. No other way to grow. No other way to walk as a free man or a free woman. No other way. Only as your story and your life is connected to Jesus. Which is why Paul talks about this kind of confusing language about baptism. What? Why that? He says in the first few verses, uh, he, he, he says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Well, Paul's talking about baptism Forgive me for a few sentences of nerdiness, but Paul's talking about baptism because baptism is an outward, visible sign of an inward reality. Here's what that means in everyday language. I can't see you looking to Jesus by faith. I can't see your faith. I can't see you resting the weight of your life, the weight of your brokenness in his hands. And so God has provided a way that you, you can own publicly, show visibly what his mastery of you looks like. And he says that there has to be a parallel. The Bible is over-the-top serious about the importance of being baptized publicly. Because God says this is not something that stays private, hidden in your life. This is to be publicized What happens in an inward, an invisible way is supposed to be paraded out on stage before everybody. And so Paul says, don't you know, Christian, that when you looked to Jesus by faith, when you were baptized, you died to sin and you were raised up to new life. So he's saying uh, this is how important Jesus is in our lives. And so just to review that first point, the only way your relationship with sin will ever change is if your relationship with Jesus has changed. You cannot bypass him. You cannot shortcut or circumvent or leap over or go some other way. He is absolutely crucial. And Paul says it's important that, because many of you have done this. Many of you, maybe for a few months, maybe for a few years, uh, you have kind of put all of your eggs in Jesus' basket. You trust him with the weight of your life and your future. You believe he has given himself for you, and he has given you the consequences of his life. You believe all of that. So what does Paul say to you? He says at the very end of this, you must reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When he says reckon, what he means is you must remember 
You must count yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Beat it into your head. Massage it into your heart. Put yourself around people, around preaching, around books, around churches that continually remind you. But he says, Christian, remember, reckon, count yourself. Know that it's true. And bring it to your mind so frequently that you can't help but believe it. That's what he means by reckon, by believe. Drill it into your head. Second point is this. This new relationship with Jesus doesn't just bring a new relationship with sin. It also brings a new fight, a new battle. And this is, uh, I, I hope this is helpful to you. Uh, what changes in a Christian's life is the Christian, is you. When, when Jesus brings his grace into your life and makes you new, he changes you. He doesn't change sin. You are the one who's transformed, not sin. Yet, Jesus is also going to do away with sin. But that's coming in a future day. But right now, what Jesus changes is you, not sin. And so you should expect, if you're in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you should expect sin to always do and act like sin always has acted. Sin is death. So Christian, when you sin, you should expect to feel death. Sin is chaos. It turns everything upside down and turns off the lights. Sin is confusion. So when we, when we give in to sin, give in to temptation, you shouldn't be surprised or think that it means that God's not at work in your life because you feel confused or because you feel dead or because you feel chaotic or because you feel alienation. Sin never changed. It's like the virus never changed. You changed. Okay, does that make sense? This is the reason why uh, myself and many of you are very discouraged. You get discouraged every now and then because you look at sin's effects in your life. Tempta- you, you look at a, a kind of all the times you've given into temptation. You feel awful about it. You feel ashamed. You feel weak. You feel like you want to hide in the dark. And you think that that means that God isn't at work in your life. And so you get more and more discouraged. You try harder and harder on your own to fix things on your own. And the reason you're discouraged, I think, is not, it's because of this misunderstanding. Sin is doing exactly what you should expect it to do. Because it never changed. You changed. Let me try to make this more practical. Think of, kind of imagine in your mind's eye two bodies. Two human bodies. One is dead, one is alive. Okay? Both bodies are infected with the same virus. This virus, uh, same virus in body A, same virus in body B. One is dead, one is alive. It ravages both. It spreads. It replicates. Uh, It spreads into every area of the body. One body is utterly overrun, dominated, mastered by it. That virus reigns and consumes and devours the person. In the other body, the person gets really sick, really weak, really exhausted, really discouraged. But there is a resistance there. There is pushback. There is a fight. There is a battle. There is tension. Why? It's this exact same virus. The question is, what is different? 
the virus of the body. Sin is sin. The virus is the virus. What's different is this body is dead in the virus. This body is alive. And so let me ask you, does the presence of a fight, of a battle, of tension, of resistance, is that a sign of life or a sign of death? Is that an encouraging thing to be celebrated and to thank God for? Or is it a discouraging thing to make you think that you're not even a Christian? Is this making sense? The presence of the fight, the presence of a battle with temptation, of tension, of a pull in your heart. In your deepest heart, you love Jesus. You want him. God is beautiful to you. You really do believe that he is life. But you look at the past 24 hours and you look at all the times that you didn't believe him, all the times you turned away, all the times your self-indulgence was the most beautiful thing in the world and God was the most boring and dull thing in the world. But you hate that. You hate that you keep falling there. You want to change, not to try to measure up. You know you measure up in Jesus. You want to change because you believe you're alive, that you were saved to be alive. And so there's a pull, there's a fight, there's a battle. Tell me, is that the mark of a Christian or is that the mark of a spiritual corpse? Those are vital signs. That's the mark of life. If you are someone in whom there is no tension, no fight with temptation, no hatred of sin, no pullback, no resistance, you have to know, you have to hear God come to you as a physician who cares about you and say, you are dead. You are not alive. You are dead in your sin. And there are no vital signs in your life. But you have to hear him as a physician who knows what you need and who loves you. Because that's the only way you will ever hear those words and not run out the door. Okay? A new relationship with Jesus brings a new relationship with sin. You're alive now. It doesn't master you. It also brings a new fight because sin never changed. And so you are in this life at odds with, battling with, duking out every hour in an exhausting way, just like the flu can sometimes have you tired, discouraged, weak, frustrated, and symptomatic. But you're alive. You're alive. And so when we get sick, we thank God for an immune system. And when you fall into temptation, you thank God for the spirit of Jesus Christ who lives and reigns in you and who will get victory and who will bring you more and more to life as you fight off familiar viruses, familiar temptations, familiar sins. Um, Really quickly, because I want to keep this personal and practical, um, this is a story that everybody in the room can apply to your own life. It may seem a little weird at first, but... um, I have a, one of my best friends uh, is a guy I've known several years, and when I first met him, we'd known each other about a year, and he confessed, or he kind of told me as we'd gotten to know each other better and better that uh, probably the the dominating struggle in his life um, was homosexuality or same-sex attraction, and he told me the story about, he'd probably been a Christian two or three years when I met him. And he told me that back in the day before Jesus had made him alive and changed his relationship with sin, he was owned by it. He was, it reigned over him. He obeyed every single impulse to act out on this. Every lustful glance he had to obey, he was owned and dominated by it. 
But he talked about how Jesus had brought a sweet conviction, uh, how Jesus had, had bent down with a strong arm to walk with him in the midst of that and to walk him out of the captivity and towards freedom. And yet, he said, this is the most depressing, discouraging, defeating struggle I have ever dealt with. Because every single second of every single day, it's there. And every person I look at, it's like the filter that I see people through. And and this began a long series of conversations where there's touch points in my life. Because every temptation struggle that I have is fundamentally similar to that. And so we began to talk about what it looks like to be alive but sick. To be free from sin, to have a new relationship to sin, but to fight in the midst of it. And this is five years later now where those first few years were just intense, so discouraging, so many times falling and failing, falling back into stuff. A lot of people would say to my buddy, you must not be a Christian because you're still struggling with temptation and sin. Uh, but people who knew the gospel and who knew Jesus patiently walked with him and say, hey, we're just like you. Sin never changed. It still parades around like it owns you and dominates you. It still puts on a crown and pretends like it's king, but it's not. Jesus will deliver you. Jesus will walk in this temptation with you and bring you back to life. Even if you still struggle 30 years from now, he is patient and he is good. And so I got an email just a few days ago. Uh, I get Covenant Eyes reports from him, uh, which is, if you don't know that, it's like an internet filter thing for people who want to fight pornography. Uh, and there's something questionable on it, so I emailed him and said, hey, what's this? What was that about? Uh, and he emailed back and he said, um, hey, just so you know, that wasn't anything sketchy. Um, I, I had set up all of these new filters and all of these new uh, Basically, he said, I, I find a way around any firewall that there is, and so I was trying to get around it to see if I need to get yet another filter to keep me away from what my heart sometimes wants. And he said, this is, it's so discouraging that five or six years later, I'm still struggling with this. And I emailed him back, and I said, we're going to agree to disagree. Because you read the email you just sent to me, and in it you see slavery, and in it you see I'm still dealing with this, I'm still fighting this battle. And I see a free man using his freedom. I see something worthy of celebration and a party. That in your weakness, you are free to walk away from these temptations. You are free to choose again for the first time. You have life in you. Your immune system is battling and fighting and working. Praise Jesus for that. Don't be discouraged by the fight. Don't be discouraged by the presence of temptation. Know that you are united to Jesus who has crushed it and who will deliver you completely from it one day very soon. The last point is quick. The new relationship with Jesus brings a new relationship with sin. It brings a new fight. But most importantly, probably, it brings a new motive inside of your fight, a new motive in your struggle as a Christian with sin and temptation that remain because sin didn't change. Okay, it brings a new motive. This this motive is twofold. Paul says both of them in this passage. He says the first one, very end of the passage, you don't live under the law anymore. Uh, Demanding that you measure up in your life, how do I measure up? I guess I follow these rules, and you never can. Paul says you don't live in that world anymore. You live in a world where God says over you all the time, my beloved, 
you measure up. You are good. You are right. You are clean. You are innocent. You are free. You are mine. That's the world you live in now. Paul says you live under the reign, not of sin, but of mercy. You live under the reign, under the king of grace. And so you're free. Uh, a lot of you may have seen all this chatter about Shia LaBeouf. LaBeouf? What is it? LaBeouf? I don't know how to pronounce French words. Et LaBeouf, whatever. LaBeouf's the guy from, uh, yeah, never mind. I'm not going to try to appear more culturally relevant in my stupidity of what I just did, but Shia LaBeouf, Morgan, LaBeouf, whatever. Now you're mocking me. Shia LaBeouf, whatever. Just uh, this movie Fury just came out, and he just did an interview in Interview Magazine, aptly named. And uh, what's been going around Facebook is all this chatter that he, if you know anything about Shia LaBeouf, wild guy. Like, getting in fistfights with all kinds of other celebrities, getting kicked off Broadway shows, directors refused to work with him in the past because he was such, just an out-of-control, like, arrogant prick. All of the people would say that. And uh, he said the movie Fury changed him. He says he became a Christian during the filming of that movie, uh, mainly because of uh, conversations with Brad Pitt, who was raised a, a, a believer, and also the director, who is a believer, who is a Christian. But here's the part of the interview that I found most interesting. I, I hope and pray that it's true, that he's alive. Um, but, but what I found most interesting about that interview wasn't that. It was uh, him talking about his relationship with that director, David Ayer. Um, this is what he says. He talks about how Fury did a lot for me in freeing me from this small man complex. He says that complex, that was why I was getting into fights and bars all the time. There is this machismo element from being this kid who never had an effing father. He says that a lot. Uh, never, be, never having an effing father around to protect him. And so he said, I always had this small man complex, this fighter mentality. But he said the filming of Fury really did a lot to calm that down. And he goes on to say, he's talking about his director now. He's saying that dude has a lot of depth and more pain than anybody I've ever met. The fact that he can even smile for 10 seconds a year is baffling to me. The dude is a miracle. The first thing David, the director, said to me is, Shia, I want you to know what's being offered to you is not just a film. This is a life changer. We're going to push it all the way to the edge. And I want you to make this movie like you'll never make another movie. You're going to die on this set. And uh, LaBeouf talks about how much they connected over a similar background. This director also didn't have a father when he was growing up. They have a lot of similar pain and, and hurt in their past. And, and Shia LaBeouf grew up without a dad, grew up feeling rejected and abandoned, says this, I've never experienced unconditional love from another man. And war is the only place in society where men are allowed to show unconditional love to each other. And what we experienced on the set of that movie was unconditional love. It was a family. David built a family, and he was pops for all of us. David is the effing best dude I've ever worked for. He says this, he's not an observer. He's going through it all with you. It's real. There's no rehearsed fight scenes. You're really getting punched in the face for real. There is no room for actors. It was like becoming a Christian. You subject yourself to everything that's coming. You relinquish everything. That's the cost of working on that movie. 
and the reward is heavy. I think it's the best work I've ever done. I attribute that to the dudes I was around. They didn't have anything at all to do with me. Um, There's not a moment in that movie that I had any control over. David was playing me like a guitar. And he said he was in complete control like a marionette puppeteer. Okay, so what, what this actor who's been in dozens of films, lots of Broadways, he's an experienced A-list actor. What he just said is, I have never done better work ever in another movie until this movie. And the reason why is because he said, this man loved me and I knew it. This man loved me like nobody has ever loved me. He invested in me like nobody has ever invested in me. And he shared his life with me. He shared pain with me like nobody else ever did. And that is what liberated and freed this actor to give the performance of a lifetime because a director played him like a guitar. A lot of people would say, someone playing you like a guitar is slavery. No individuality, no freedom. They're, they're working you like a puppet. But Shia LaBeouf says, that's when I became alive. That's when I became free to be the actor I always knew I could be. And he said it had nothing to do with me. It's this guy's love for me in that moment that made all the difference. Paul says you live under grace now if you are attached to Jesus. And he says the only way you will ever live your life or give a performance of your lifetime is if God is your puppet master. If he is the master guitarist playing you, that is freedom. That is liberty. That is life. Paul says God didn't just save you from sin. He saved you that you might live a new life. Submission to Jesus is the way into that life. And it's the way to taste that life. Let's pray that he would help us to believe this and to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus. Lord, we do uh, thank you for the beauty and the expanse of the gospel. It is always bigger, wider, deeper, higher, better than we are able to wrap our heads around. We pray that you would give us grace, Holy Spirit, to count ourselves dead to sin that tells us it's our master. Let us start using our freedom that we have of moving the feet that you gave us to no longer offer ourselves as instruments of wickedness, but to offer ourselves to use our bodies, our brains, our hearts, our mouths, our eyes, our feet, our hands to be instruments of righteousness, to be life-giving tools. We pray that you would do this because it's what you're doing in the world and we want to be a part of that and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cost it cost you. We ask this in your name.